Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from us all at TNT Radio. The conversation continues with Bruce Torres on today's News Talk TNT Radio. This is World Stage, exposing the tyrannies and exploring our power with deep dives into history, current events, dangerous trends, and the nature of reality. Before I introduce my guest, I want to talk a minute about CorbettReport.com, uh, the website. It's an open source, uh, listener-supported alternative news source by James Corbett, award-winning investigative journalist. Check it out. Subscribe if you'd like. And especially on December 18th, uh, a couple days ago, he posted an article, Reportage, Adventures in the New Media, which is his account how in 2006... He was an English teacher in Japan, and he started enjoying what he could find on the internet of info that you don't find on the mainstream, and it blew his mind. It, I believe it started with 9-11, and that's the account in this article. And the reason to read it is twofold. It's to discover James. It's to discover his vast amount of content at CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, Report.com. But also, his story of starting from scratch and just getting inspired, I want to create a podcast, has led him to become one of the most respected, sought-after commentators and an independent investigative journalists on the internet, exposing truths that official mainstream reality does not want us to see or to know. So, and I encourage everybody to go there as soon as you possibly can. After this show, with me this hour is Dr. David Bell, a public health and internal physician with a PhD in population health. He has worked in international public health for over 25 years. This has included positions as a medical officer at the World Health Organization, program head at the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics in Geneva, and Director of Global Health Technologies at Global Good Fund near Seattle in the United States. He currently consults in biotech and global health and is a senior scholar at the Brownstone Institute. Thank you very much for joining me today, David. How are you? Good. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on. I want to dissect your bio here as a way of putting a lot on the table for us to talk about and zeroing in on two things at the top public health one of your expertises and also your time at the world health organization because as one who has studied and followed covid since it descended upon us i, I there's no more urgent story there's there's equally urgent but among the top are what you've written about a lot and are teaching the world a lot is what the World Health Organization is up to these days and what is looming on the horizon unless more people wake up and get involved in trying to protect ourselves from much that is queued up for us. So that said, talk to me, please, about your, your background in public health, perhaps how that started, and then get into the World Health Organization for me as, as soon as you can, please. 
Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, I guess I'm interested in public health because I, you know, I have an increase in uh, an interest in science in, um, you know, the the way populations react, um, you know, international affairs, etc. And so I, you know, I moved out of clinical medicine originally in, into Indigenous health in Australia, but then I joined the World Health Organization. Um, working in uh, mostly in malaria diagnostics infectious disease trying to get the idea was to try to get the capacity to diagnose and manage health more to a sort of local level village level in low-income countries rather than having a, this sort of vertical approach that we've always you know in the past tried to avoid in public health and that was a lot of my role i worked on the first sars outbreak which has sort of been useful in reflection uh, trying to understand what's happening now um but yeah i i own my, my concerns with COVID have really been from the very start even late 2019 when that rumor started and really because it, it was uh, there's been a tension for about 20 years in international public health between the more traditional orthodox way of doing things which is um you know respecting the right of people to make their own decisions um trying to strengthen local capacity to manage your own health um strengthen national capacity etc and you know the, the understanding which is the reality that most improvements in life expectancy and health over the last 100 150 years have been around sanitation better nutrition better living conditions um and antibiotics have played a big role and then you know, vaccines in some diseases have played a role on top of that, but by far, and as this is orthodox, it's not new, although I think a lot of doctors graduating now probably don't understand that vaccines came in very late when most of the life expectancy gains were already there. So trying to, you know, in international public health, it was about trying to get those gains to lower middle income countries where people are still dying a lot earlier than in rich countries um so that that was you know that's one approach and the other approach that has grown over the last 20 years has been very much driven by the increase private funding that has come into international public health which seemed a good idea at the time but you know people have heard of public private partnerships is essentially where you combine usually a lot of public money, a little bit of private money, and you, you know you think more money is a good thing, but you forget that private money comes with strings attached, and private um, corporations, individuals only give money if they're going to get something back by and large. So it's driven another stream of international public health in a much more vertical approach where it's based around commodities, particularly vaccines. Um, where the people who are putting money into this area can get a lot of money back. And this has become really clear during COVID where, you know, the, the orthodox way of managing a overall pretty mild respiratory virus, it, it was bad for essentially old people who are very sick already. Otherwise, you know, for young middle-aged people, it was not a bad virus overall. It was like a bad flu. Um, but we we managed it as an existential threat and we locked everyone down essentially until we could get vaccines into them, which has made hundreds of billions of dollars for the people who have been funding this area of international public health, but has 
probably done nothing and probably been an overall negative for life expectancy and well-being. So, um, you know, my interest is in trying to get back to a rational evidence-based way of managing infectious disease and health in general. Thank you. Trying to uh, comment in order of the things you discussed, you mentioned the tension between approaching public health from maybe the most local, decentralized, as you've written in a couple of articles, versus top-down. Was it more effective in the late 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s along those lines? When did, I think, the balance tilt to the top-down to today and for the last 10, 15 years in light of what Bill Gates' organization has inflicted in Africa and India before COVID, when did it, when did it tilt? And how dangerous is it uh, today? Well, there's a history here. If you go back far enough, um, it was public health was very vertical. If you go back to the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, the colonialist era, and mm. you know a lot of countries still had sort of feudal peasant-like societies, etc., and systems. So, public health was very much over most of the world. Um, you know, the experts telling people what to do, and the people had no choice but to follow what they were told to do. And you know, it's a way colonial societies work. It's the way feudal societies work, and. The, the that all came to a head, I think, in the Second World War with um, you know the excesses of fascism. Um, after the Second World War, we saw this change where there was a lot of decolonization in the world. So the idea that people should manage their own affairs and not be told what to do by someone who happens to be richer with better weapons, um, and. Within that, the 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 growth, the the understanding of human rights, of individual sovereignty, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is very clear um, that the sort of things that the dictates that happened during COVID, stopping, you know, taking away the right of education, visiting family, of work, etc., should not happen, um, and especially in an emergency where these things have become most important. So. We've gone in a cycle. So I think, you know, there's a sort of combination in the 1970s, 1980s, where we, you know, everyone working in international public health understood that a horizontal approach where you looked at health systems as a whole, you looked at in a holistic way at, <clears throat> at health. Um, you know, people mostly die of infectious disease because they're poorly equipped physically to cope with it um, through poverty, et cetera or their environment is such because of poor sanitation and because of poverty that they're exposed continually to bad germs. So managing that is the best way to fix that. And the same applies to um, outbreaks. You know, most people who died from COVID had severe morbidities, particularly metabolic diseases, severe obesity, diabetes, et cetera. These are new, mostly nutritional. Um, you deal with them, if you deal with those and you concentrate on that side of health, then you're not only 
better at managing something like a SARS-CoV-2 virus that caused COVID, but you're you're going to live longer for all sorts of other reasons. So this is not you know a radical understanding. This is orthodox medicine. Now what we've lost is that uh, we 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 moved in 2020 into this approach where you know we pretended that, for instance, that natural immunity against the SARS-CoV-2 virus was inferior and we needed to be vaccinated, which is just ludicrous. Uh, you know, natural, and it's worth understanding this because it, it it's a good example of what happened. So if you're infected by this, a respiratory virus like SARS-CoV-2, the COVID virus, you firstly, you encounter the whole virus. So SARS-CoV-2 has got these four different proteins. You can develop immunity to all of those four different proteins. And some of them are very conserved. So even where you get variants, that protein is essentially the same in the new variant. It's just the spike protein that differs. The other thing that happens is you get immunity in your throat. Um, so it doesn't even get to your lungs if it, the next time it comes. And this is a natural way that we've evolved to cope with respiratory viruses. If you inject an antigen, you know, the one of the proteins, or inject mRNA to make your body make that protein, a single protein, then you form immunity to that single protein. In the case of COVID, it's spike protein, which is the one that varies most with the next variant. So it's quite likely next variant comes along you have very poor immunity if you're just relying on a vaccine so this is standard um it's also very clear from the beginning that it was almost exclusively old people that were dying from COVID, not young people that was clear from china it was published in the lancet in march 2020 so we knew this all along even though the modeling from imperial college ignored it imperial college actually published those figures in lancet in march so we knew that locking up children, closing schools, closing workplaces where young fit people were paying taxes and contributing to, to the economy was never going to make any difference to the respiratory virus. And if anything, if they even worked in slowing down spread, they would slow down this development of broad immunity in the people that we wanted to be immune. So it, it was the opposite of a um, good public health response, but it paved the way to make a lot of money from vaccination later. And we who are not in public health, we who are not scientists or doctors or researchers, mm. but who rolled up our sleeves to comprehend what the heck's going on and listen to alternative voices, we're, we're torn in two because here yeah. officials at the lectern in the White House and on the news every night, we're, we're telling us to do these things that we'd never done before. And that other doctors and nurses were getting on the internet and saying, like you just described, there's no need to do what was imposed on us to do. And it's a documentation of what many like me believe is a, a truly incredible agenda for no good purpose. With me is Dr. David Bell, and we are dissecting public health. What's a good version of it? What have we been enduring the last few years? 
And now here is important information from TNT Radio. Jeremy now on TNT Radio. Being South African, I'm, I know the situation and it's incredibly dire. Basically, our farmers, mostly white, have been under attack for years and years and years. And when I say attack, I mean that physically, don't I? Yes. Um, since the dawn of democracy in South Africa, since 1994, we had an average of uh, one farm attack every second day um, so it averages around uh, 175 to 190 farm attacks every year and we had a farm murder on average every fifth day um, but over the last few months both of those numbers have picked up murders in other sectors of society are not accompanied by the same levels of brutality and torture as you will find in farm murders. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Chief Division Counsel and DOJ have approved a no-knock breach. We want the subject to be on display, doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? Government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I gonna get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at. And then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. the air 24-7, your news talk giant, TNT. This is World Stage, and with me is Dr. David Bell. And David, reviewing some of the history that you just shared, starting back 100 years through World War II and then up to today, uh, you reviewed what I see as the perennial battle of the divine right of kings wanting to exploit and control a subject colonized uh, peoples and the that battle is well really well described by a historian named anton chaitkin do you know that name do you know anton's work by any chance no i don't well, I, th I throw it out there um yeah because he's he writes voluminously and I take, and people take great hope from the history he lays out because the ideals of the American founding can still improve, if not save us all, uh, could they be implemented? Was there ever 
a, a golden period of public health, led maybe by the World Health Organization at any point in the last few decades. You mentioned in the 70s, there was an awareness of a more appreciation of horizontal, to take, me taking that to mean the, the local implementation or observation or, or implementation of, of things that could actually help populations. Or has the vice always been trying to snapshot and and how has it not snapped shut on so much of the world this 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 effort to squeeze as much profit at the expense of people's health and lives because institutions like the WHO are in the grips of privateers who just want to make money by people's sickness and loss of life Yeah. Um, Lots to ponder. Yeah, I'm trying to think out what your question is. Um, I can uh, restate it more specifically. Yeah, you might need to. It's a broad issue. Okay, I'll I'll swing into this as a as a specific item. Are you aware of a writer named John Perkins? Did you ever read or see him lecture on his book called Confessions of an Economic Hitman? No, you're you're making me sound ignorant, but but I think I know where you're leading about the, um, I, I mean I guess the, yeah there the, there was a a time in I guess the seventies and eighties where globally um, you know we were still valuing the idea of you know decolonization and equality and so on human rights. Um, uh, maybe that was a, a sort of golden period for public health at least in principle they those sort of, you know we stated that we believed those sorts of values um mm -hmm. and and that you know, if you if you read the WHO constitution a lot of it um reflects that i mean the it talks about you know each country having essentially an equal role and um the definition of health being uh, physical, mental, and social health, which is really important. And it's not just gobbledygook, it's evidence-based. Uh, you know, there are very good studies that show in public health that people who are in control of their own destiny, essentially, they're, they're higher up on the, um, you know, at work, they have control over what they're doing. They are the bosses rather than the, the bottom rungs in the, the hierarchy in, a, in industry they live longer when you um, allow for all other influences. So it's very well accepted that being subjugated reduces life expectancy. And there, there are strong studies showing this. So the, the idea that people have control over their own health is not just a human right. It's not just, you know, because it, people are sovereign beings, but it is actually mm. a positive public health influence as well. And social and mental health clearly reflect on physical health. So if you're locking people down and saying there's a dangerous virus, therefore you have to give up your social health, you have to give up your mental health, and you have to actually give up most of your physical health, you can't even go and get exercise at the gym or in the park, you just have to sit in your house and not talk to anyone. Well, 
that may or may not help with that particular virus, but you know that overall that's a harm to health, both physical, mental, and social. So yeah. there was a time when that was mainstream understood in public health, and that perhaps was the golden age. Um, what we're hearing now is quite the opposite. Um, you know, the, this emphasis on 100-day vaccines and there's an existential threat every time two people somewhere in the world get hit by a new virus um, versus the you know, millions who die every year from cancer. The, you know, the, the big killers are not infectious disease in most of the world. Mm -hmm. And even where they are infectious disease, they're tuberculosis, malaria, HIV. They're not these outbreaks, which are a very, very small part of health impact. And reading your articles at the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org, you, you very rationally and reasonably describe these distinctions between measures that would work, measures that don't, and raise an alarm. And there, there, are, there are other groups, but talk to me about Brownstone, the Brownstone Institute, and all, but first, your your response and that of your peers, because the world's response to COVID in 2020 seemed to many, including me, after I comprehended it over the course of a number of months, uh, it seemed reminiscent of how the Nazi party in Germany, year by year, turned the screws and took that country further and further into absurdities that led to atrocities, to use Voltaire's formula. What was it like in your position with your peers during that first year and then up to, up to today? Because obviously you're working very hard to raise an alarm, in my words, pointing out the the insanity and the and the true cruelty and evil and harm of mm. what's being done to us. Yeah, it is, and I think the analogy of the nineteen thirties is very good. Um, people don't like to hear that, but you know, people have this idea of the the Nazis in the nineteen thirties were all jack jackboots and breaking windows. It it wasn't like that. You know, in the nineteen thirties, for the majority of the population, you know job there was more jobs the incomes were increasing there was you know the the youth organizations out building paths in the mountains and so on and you know we see monochrome films but actually it was full color and there was flowers blooming and all the rest of it and if you weren't one of the minorities that was being vilified and um used as a scapegoat for the ills of society then it seemed good and it seemed progressive and the word progressive was used. Um, it's not that different now. You know, we saw 2020, 2021, this clear vilification of minorities um, in a very orchestrated way, singling out a certain group, which happened to be people who believed strongly in bodily autonomy and didn't want to be injected with a particular vaccine, often for very good sound reasons. I mean, they were already immune or they'd done the calculations and realized there was no significant risk. So they were vilified, they were called all sorts of names, and they were the society was told that they were the reason why the pandemic was not stopping. And this is very, very similar. We've also seen censorship 
We've seen the use of emergency orders to override the sort of democratic structures that we set up. And it's not stopping, which people think because COVID seems to have gone in the background. But what's happening with the WHO instruments is essentially handing these powers of lockdown to an international bureaucracy, even beyond our countries, and setting up a, a um, essentially an industry where we have very strong surveillance to look for any variant. We can use that as a, a threat, and it doesn't have to be demonstrated harm for this essential takeover of control of individual and national health in, in response to infectious disease. And then the institution of these rapidly developed, essentially untested vaccines, which can be mandated to get your freedom back. And this is uh, the idea of these instruments that are being discussed in, in May and voted on at the World Health Assembly, the governing body of the World Health Organization. Uh, to put this in place globally um, so that an international body um, there's essentially a bureaucracy, a health bureaucracy, very strongly influenced by non-democratic states and by private interests will have this power over us, the powers that we saw during the COVID lockdowns. And this will happen a lot because if you can make hundreds of billions of dollars by doing it once, then there's an overwhelming incentive if you're you know, not a very moral person to keep doing that. And I think we saw from COVID that there's a lot of people in high places who don't have mm -hmm. the sort of moral standards we expected. Yeah. And, you know, your writings at the Brownstone Institute and the, the, the history, as I know it, of the, uh, Bill Gates's uh, harms over the last decade or more, really, in Africa and India, it's a, the house is on fire. And the, talk to me, please, about what is in the uh, international health regulations, the amendments that seem to be unavoidable, because at least in America, my, my understanding is precious few, if any, congressmen and senators are are daring to push back against the compliance which people like james roguski have shown is a completely unconstitutional process our agreement to those amendments and the regulations ought to have been ratified like a treaty through the senate but that was bypassed in 69 and then every other time that it's been amended and Due to the various the, the state of emergency that I believe the the WHO uh, declared in 2020, to talk to me about you know the, the edge of the cliff that I that if you would see it that way too, I think we're on the edge of a really bad cliff that make these look like the good old days. What do you make of my more or less uh, picture there? Uh, I think we are, and so I think in understanding this, just to go back, you know, you talk about Gates and so on, and you know, I mentioned the WHO. I think we need to see that in all of this, uh, that there are not individuals who are driving this. Um, you know, there are some individuals highly involved, but and it's not the WHO trying to take over the world. This is a an essentially an international fascist movement, which you know the world. Economic Forum is one of the big embodiments of this, but there are other groupings as well. 
And it's this idea that a small technocratic elite should have the power to run the rest of the population um, for, you know, they would see as the population's good in the end, they say their own good. Um, this was a big thing in the 1920s and 1930s, which is why that's a relevant time. The technocratic movement in the US, the eugenics movement, etc., all embodiments of this. So we, we're seeing a shift back to that. Um, what happened in the Second World War is that we had a split in countries and we had countries that could go in and stop it by force. Now we haven't got that. Um, we've seen, so that's why we need to see this as a movement and not as an individual organisation. So the, the WHO um, treaty is, you know, there's, there is pushback on it, particularly from um, lower income countries who see this as a, quite rightly, I think, as a recurrence of colonialism and colonialist intent. Um, so they're pushing back on some of it, but they're in a difficult position because they need, you know, one thing COVID did was um, increase the debt, the foreign debt of almost every low-income country in the world. So they are, they're very heavily dependent on the IMF and the World Bank who are part of this agenda. Um, right, and that economic, their economic assistance, in quotes, comes with so many handcuffs and conditions yes, exactly. and the sacrifice yeah. of rights and ownership and use yeah. of natural resources. It's slavery. It's economic, uh, international trade slavery, in my opinion. Yeah, it's slavery. It's colonialism. It's a feudal sort of mindset. And, you know, in a way, this is a default of humanity, but it's something that we managed to fight off for the last 50, yeah. 60, 70 years. But it's it's rapidly coming back if we don't stop it. So, yeah, I think that, you know, in the US, there are quite a few in Congress and the Senate who are very aware of what's going on. Um, it is difficult for them to react for a few reasons. One, because all the money in politics is, or nearly all the money is from the side of, you know, the companies that are raking in the money from these sorts of um, policies from, you know, the, the drug companies, et cetera. They control the media, which controls politics, and they have a very big direct influence on politics. It's also difficult because when you talk about these things, people struggle to believe that our institutions and our democracies can be subverted on that scale. But it's not something that happens overnight. There's been 20 years of this. So at the World Economic Forum, you know, the chair of it, Klaus Schwab, he, he boasts that they have, you know, in his own words, penetrated the cabinets of Western countries, and he gives a string of examples. And, you know, the the World Economic Forum alumni, the young global leaders are a real thing. You can go on the website and find them. And, you know, it's Macron and Ardern and um, Trudeau, Trudeau in Canada. And the recent, mm -hmm. uh, the recent one that was pushed out in um, in Finland and so on. And there's a whole string yeah. of, of leaders. And he boasts yeah. about how, you know, even in Canada, he thinks he had most of the cabinet under his thumb. So th th this is a real thing. And, and it's a sort of indoctrination of the class that ends up in leading politics. And there's a huge amount of money invested in this because people are making a lot of money out of it. And people like you are making a, a tremendous effort to expose the truth. With me is Dr. David Bell. 
PhD in population health, who has worked in international public health for over 25 years, and we will be back after this important information from TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I want to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas, and I was trying to figure out, okay, what should I say? And I got an email from a friend of mine, Dr. Gregory Wrightstone. Actually, it's his group, the CO2 Coalition. And you know what? This is too good to pass up. I'm going to read it to you because it just about sums everything up. It was a few days before Christmas when all through the town, the creatures were all celebrating the warmth they had found. The trees were all prospering. The veggies, how merry. They had such an abundance. It was extraordinary. Those stories were circling of climate alarm. The wise citizens knew they were feeling no harm. We're celebrating the season, dear friends like you, and we give many, many thanks for our beloved CO2. I think you can agree that is beautiful. In any case, a very, very Merry Christmas to all. Enjoy the weather and your CO2. It's the only weather you've got. She was reading at a second grade level in kindergarten. Pod four swimming before she was seven. Finally convinced mom to get her ears pierced in the third grade. Came in second at her fifth grade spelling bee. Drill team in the seventh. And with one stroke of the keyboard. One click of the mouse. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Report a cyber tip today. Bruce DeTorres. On today's News Talk Radio. TNT. And with me is Dr. David Bell. You were a medical officer at the World Health Organization, program head at the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics in Geneva. And you also are a senior scholar at the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org. Which, uh, at the Brownstone or at your other work, or is it is it mostly your writings and publications? What, what are you spending most of your time doing these days, David, I don't want to assume anything. See, in my head, I'd like to, I, I would complete the arc of the circle of what I see of you as full-time working to expose uh, the truth and raise the alarm and inspire more people to uh, resist what's being uh, imposed upon us. But what is what is the majority of your 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 work these days in any field? Well, it's in global health, and I'm still involved. You know, there's everything is not bad, um, and it, you know, never is in the world. So there, there is still good thing. You know, there's still good stuff that the WHO is doing. Um, there's good stuff that the Gates Foundation is doing. There's you have to distinguish, um, you know, what is good from what shouldn't be um, followed, and the, so, you know, the, there is a need in people still die of malaria, they die of TB. These are the main the main causes of health problems in the world haven't gone away. And just because the money is elsewhere and the media is elsewhere and um, the public consciousness is elsewhere doesn't mean these things go away. They, they're all getting worse. So these endemic diseases are increasing. The amount of poverty in the world is rapidly increasing um so yeah i'm pretty much still involved in consulting and so on in these these areas um looking among other things at you know the the evidence of um what is going on you know the pandemic agenda and 
the um the strength of the evidence behind that you know outbreaks do occur um the issue is not that they don't occur but that they are being grossly overstated and the risk is being grossly overstated and this is harming the stuff that we should be doing while just lining the pockets of a, a small very small minority and concentrating wealth into their pockets so at the moment, the way public health is going, I mean, the world is getting poorer, the world is getting less healthy, a few people are getting very rich. Um, that's the trajectory. Mm -hmm. So my work mm -hmm. in the end, I think, is trying to reverse that. Absolutely. You know, it's 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 great to hear you say, you know, I don't think I've ever heard anyone really allude to the good that the WHO might be doing, the good that the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, foundation might be doing and yet as you evaluated it just now you kind of came full circle and emphasized the world's getting poorer the world's getting less less healthy and i really see it as a failure of democracy representative government all governments yeah. neglecting and abusing the rights of their people and most outrageously in the united states which claims to be for at the forefront of leading the effort to imbue and honor humanity's inalienable rights it's such an this is all such an epic failure of the american people in my opinion yeah to and yet i like how you said you know these other these these organizations are doing some good because i'm increasingly aware of and trying to remember all the groups and independent people who are trying to create solutions find solutions and inspire people to participate and get active and i want to go down a you know an esoteric hallway real quick with you david um i'm very inspired uh, by the idea that what we think and feel not only has an energetic effect on every cell of our body towards happiness and health, but even resonates out into what science, you know, calls the the quantum field. I haven't seen any mention of that in any of, of your work. What do you make of those type of things? So, yeah, I, you know, I, I do believe that there is a lot more than the physical world. Um, you know, I'm a, a Christian for a lot of reasons. I believe um, that there is, um, you know, there is God who is clearly above us and so on. I um, have a lot of friends who believe that, a lot of friends who don't. I have very strong reasons for believing that to be true. Um, so that reflects on my worldview clearly. Um, death is not the same if you have that point of view than it is if you believe that we're just a random piece of um, biological material that happened to come together, you know, through random events that created DNA and so on. And, you know, when you're gone, you're gone. And that's it. And a lot of, I think a lot of the people running this agenda, they have that point of view. And uh, it's, it's important to understand that. So that comes back to we're not talking about a few institutions trying to take over the world. We're talking about something much deeper, a, a deeper problem in society. And 
if you see the world as purely material and humans as having no intrinsic worth beyond self-gratification, which is the logic that you end up with if you believe that there is nothing except just chemistry that makes us, then you know, trying to control everyone else, having no um, interest in their well-being um, is perfectly rational. Um, and that, and you so, know, that's a that's a point you make in an article that's right here in my hands, which uh, refutes what I just said that I haven't seen anything that you've written. No, correction. I read and enjoyed from November nineteenth. You posted the emptiness of the transhumanist ideal, where you make some of the points that you just uh, mentioned about the the value of each individual's human life. Yeah. And so if you see that, if you see people as having an intrinsic value, um, you know, because they're valued by a greater being than us, that, you know, if you have that worldview and you believe there's an infinite being that um, is interested in each person, then you have to approach people very differently. If you don't have that worldview, if you believe that we're just purely physical, then you have a completely different, or you may have a logically completely different approach. So I sort of understand in a way where the people running this agenda are coming from, why you know they, they just have unbridled greed and no apparent concern for the well-being of other people, except where it seems to benefit them. And... I can see that that is a rational view if you um, have, you know, what to me is a, to, to me is in, actually an irrational worldview, but I can see why they end up with that. Um, so I think we have to understand that. And, you know, going back to what you said, we, we have let these people um, gain control. We, we, we've allowed this huge... Um, inequality to grow in our societies and this is new if you look at the the charts of income equality from say the 1970s to now so it's since then that we've seen this huge diversion between a very rich less than one percent and the vast majority of the people and once you let that happen you are allowing these sorts of people and people get rich for a number of reasons but one of them is obviously because you know, it's not everyone who gets rich, but one way to get rich is to take stuff from others in the end. And so a lot of very rich people tend to be of the mindset where that's okay to do. And if you let them get so rich that they can buy governments, they can buy the media, and they can therefore influence day-to-day um, -day life in the way that we're now seeing, then that's a mistake that society has made that we've got to undo, but we it's a it's an inevitable result, I think, of letting this um, extent of inequality grow within our societies, and that's something that we've allowed to happen. Since 2020, what do you make of how would you assess the percentage, let's say, of professionals in public health like yourself what percentage of them have you know seen and report and talked about things 
truthfully, maybe with outrage, and what percentage are, are happy for the sake of status, paycheck, job security, to, to go along with what really looks like criminal insanity to me? I think in the area that I work, so say international public health, um, it's probably about 1% who's, who, who, who've been in any way vocal. Um, and that's not exaggerating. It's probably about 1% or, you know, I only know three or four people, really five people who've been from a health background. There are others who are talking about public health, but from a health background and who are in the international field who's spoken out. Um, yep. There are and a that, lot more. Now, wait, David, that I've got yeah. in my hand now from December 12th, you published, We Must Save Ourselves from the Public Health Professionals, where yeah. you thoroughly explore the point you just made of these are human beings and it's a huge part of our nature to be accepted by our peers. Ex expand on that a yeah. little, if you would. Yeah. So the, you know, people in international public health like, like myself, and I, I still see myself this way, tend to be a bit left of center in the old politics. Uh, I think the politics has gone away, but I still have, have those values. And you know, to be told to be called right wing or Trump pro Trump or something like that is like the, the worst way that you can be treated, and you're, you're terrified of that in front of others and so on. I mean, I got used to it, but um, but people are really scared of that. So they're scared of their peers seeing them as on the wrong side of politics. But they also, I mean, they're on they want careers. They have kids in school and they have education. You know, International public health people, by and large, are very well looked after. They have, if you're in the WHO, for instance, you have education subsidies for your kids. You have very good health care. You may even have tax-free petrol, gas, and so on. And um, you don't pay taxes um, on your income, which is already very good. So there are a lot of incentives, and people get trapped in this. And so a lot of people in the public health field, they realise that something is badly wrong. They know pretty much what is wrong, but they're waiting for someone else to fix it. Um, so I think the point of my article is that this, yeah, you know, there is, this is where the careers are now is in pandemic preparedness and this whole agenda that's making money for big pharma. So the there's not going to be enough people standing up within the public health field um, to fix this is is going to have to be the public and politicians forcing them to reform themselves. So yep. people can't wait for the experts. They have to actually, you know, do their own research. Shock horror. Um, ah, and speaking know, of which, there's, there's no better resource than your articles along these lines, David, at brownstone.org on December 11th. Why does the WHO make false claims regarding proposals to seize state sovereignty? And... Uh, we must save ourselves from the public health professionals. Um, November 1st, you publish, how did the corruption of public health happen? And for every for, for those types of folks, which are the masses who really watch and do and follow what other people, quote unquote, do. Quick story about the Milgram experiments from, I think, the early 1960s, where subjects were told to increase the voltage on another subject they couldn't see, but they could hear them in another room. If the 
official, maybe in a white coat and with a clipboard, told them to because the person on the other side of the wall wasn't doing the right thing or giving the right answers. Now, that person wasn't really being hurt at all. The person following instructions to increase the electrical volt or whatever the damage was, was the one being seen. And even though they could hear somebody screaming, two-thirds yeah. of people, maybe it's up to, maybe it was 70%, maybe it was 80%, I've got to mm. restudy that. Even though they agonized about it, maybe sometimes they cried, they would give what they could see on their instruments was nearly a lethal dose of that, let's say it was electricity, hearing somebody scream because they were following orders, they were doing what authority told them to do. And that's, yeah. where most, that's what most people know about the Milgram experiments, and it's absolutely mm. a horrifying statistic. But it I was is, talking and this about... Is why, wait, so let me just make this say, point. David, you're, you're yeah, going to yeah. like this point. Right. You're going to like this point. I was talking right. about this with someone, and they said, Bruce, there were many layers uh, to those experiments. Mm. Some rounds of the experiment, the, the next people who were going to be quote-unquote tested got to see someone before them follow the orders and go through the ordeal. And if one person refused and said no, mm. the, the statistics absolutely swung and tilted to the other direction. So instead of 60 or 70 or 80% of people complying and hurting another human being because the authority told them to, it dropped to something like 5 or 10 or 15%. So all the, the point being... For gosh sake, folks, each one of us has to rouse ourselves and do whatever yeah. it takes to courageously resist things that are awful. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to make the point that, that this is why Anthony Fauci used to wear a white coat on TV. Um, he works in an office, doesn't work in the lab, no reason to wear a white coat. But we would see that for that exactly that reason, because people yeah. see yeah. that as authority and then they would automatically follow without thinking. Yeah, yeah. We're down to our last couple of minutes, David. What would you uh, highlight and steer people toward? Uh, if I didn't cover it, you know, your your best articles here, what what would you te tell people, steer people toward being equipped uh, to be most knowledgeable about these things? At first, I would ask people to use their common sense and where something seems really stupid, don't do it. So, you know, if you're told to you know, wear a mask at the door of a restaurant and take it off at the table, all this sort of stuff. Just don't do it. If you're told to, um, you know, to take a vaccine and you can see that, or, you know, it's a brand new one that hasn't been properly tested and, uh, and um, you know that you can see data that you're at minimal risk, then think hard about the risks and benefits so you need to do your own research and ignore the people who are saying that that is dangerous because humans have been given a brain for a reason um and you know, there is something to us making our own decisions that um goes above just being um you know we hear this about the greater good but actually the greater good is best served by in individuals um, acting as sovereigns and respecting each other's sovereignty. Dr. David Bell, whose articles can be found at brownstone.org of the Brownstone Institute. And check out their webpage and learn what they're up to because you've got some great uh, peers and colleagues there who are doing really, really great work to empower folks with uh, important information. This is TNT Radio.